Would you turn to Luke 21, verses 29 through 36? If you are new to the Bible, that is totally fine. Um, Luke is in the New Testament. There's Bibles in front of you also. And if you can't find it, it's also up on the screen. So Luke 21, 29 through 36. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. All right. Good morning. Thanks, honey. You know, in four years of our church existing, that was like only the first time Joanne has ever done the scripture reading. And so, man... That was, that was just the best. No one's ever done it better, honey. <laughs> you know, a few years ago, I, my family and I uh, wanted to visit my parents and my sister in Georgia. And when you have four kids, um, traveling on planes becomes uh, about $2,000, even if you, you know, take spirit, you know, uh, and, and, and that's a terrifying experience on its own. So we, we decided we are going to drive. And as you parents know, driving with kids, it can be a nightmare. Um, and flesh, your flesh is alive and well. Sin comes knocking at the door uh, when you drive with your kids. And uh, so we're like, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to drive through the night while they're sleeping. Okay. So we're going to, I'm going to drive for 20 hours straight from here to Georgia in the night while they sleep. Um, and as many of you guys probably know, that didn't work out as nicely as we thought. Um, we, we, right when we got there, we're like, we got here! One of our kids threw up. Like, just right when we got in, at like hour 19, while we went to Chick-fil-A, like right for the, to get breakfast. And one of the realities that happened, as you would probably um, assume, no matter how many energy drinks I um, consumed and how much I was, uh, my heart was palpitating and I was shaking from all the caffeine, uh, there were points in the night where I started to fall asleep. Um, sleep scientists call this micro-sleeps, where you actually fall asleep, you don't realize it, and your, your brain just shuts down for a second to get the rest it needs. And, um, and I would, you know, do the classic, you know, slaps. I would do the, you know, whatever. I was listening to different things to wake up. But the sleep was overcoming me. And at times when I fell asleep, I didn't even know I fell asleep, if you guys know what I'm talking about. And in fact, this is actually, a, a, we have a sleep epidemic in our world where even in America, um, there was something like 91,000 car crashes last year just from sleep deprivation. And, and that one out of 25 adults actually admits admit that they fell asleep in the last month at the wheel. So you guys know what that's like, that feeling of sleep coming over you and trying to fight it, and, and it's, it's overwhelming, and you're losing half the time, and you, you better pull over to the side or get someone else to stay awake for you and drive. But today, in our passage that Jesus gives us in the Gospel of Luke, as we've been preaching through Luke, it's actually a passage that has more deadly consequences than just falling asleep at the wheel. There are Worse things than falling asleep at the wheel, believe it or not, as bad as that is and devastating, because there is a spiritual sleepiness that can take place, a spiritual slumber that can take place that Jesus is going to address to his disciples, that he's warning them, beware lest you fall asleep, because it's going to be very easy to fall asleep. And so there's two people here this morning, there's some of us who are in Jesus, we're born again, we love Christ, but we are sleepy. We are falling asleep at a variety of degrees. And then some of you here, maybe you've never been awake. And if that's you, my prayer is that today would be a day that you wake up this morning. 
not just physically, but spiritually. So I want to pray with you one more time, if you could. Father, I love this passage because it's mercy and a gift to my soul, because I can easily fall asleep at the spiritual wheel. And I know that one of the dangers of sleep is that we don't know we're sleeping. We don't know when we fell asleep. And so what we need from you is a supernatural move of your Holy Spirit to awaken us, to awaken our spiritual senses, because no matter how eloquent I can be or clear I can be, I can't wake people up. Only you can. So we welcome your presence and your power. Help me, Lord, serve these people well and help me tell the truth and nothing but the truth. So help me, God. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so for the last four weeks or so, we've been in chapter 20 and 21 in Luke. And this is, Jesus is moving towards his execution. And one of the final steps, he's at the temple proclaiming judgment upon the corrupted temple and its religious system that preyed on the poor and totally um, gave people an inaccurate view of Yahweh. And so Jesus is finishing up this temple teaching in chapter 21. So remember, in the last few weeks, Pastor Ross and Daniel preached, so you have to keep that in mind. If you haven't been here for, uh, to hear those, please just check it out online. Um, so keep that in mind. We're ending it today. Now, the passage... Is, has two sections. We're going to talk about the fig tree, but we're going to fly through that section to set us up for the main command Jesus has for us in verses 34 through 36. Now, today, we are talking about a passage that covers the end times. And Christians, Christians, we're weird enough, right? We believe some weird things that are true, but weird things. But Christians can get to another level of wonkiness and weirdness when we talk about the end times, if you know what I'm saying. And so we got to have some sanity as we look at this passage, because this passage, if you are not careful reader, or if you are potentially projecting upon this text your desires of what you want this text to say, you may miss the big point. And a lot of Christians miss the big point when they look at end times passages because of maybe TBN or different things that they've seen on YouTube. And I want to make sure we get the main point. And the main point is that Jesus is warning us of spiritual sedatives that are lulling us to sleep. And he's trying to love us by keeping us awake. He's trying to keep his disciples awake, especially in light of tremendous trials and temptations. Okay, so we're going to start with a fig tree from 29 to 33. If you're looking in your Bible, check it out or on the screen. 30, verse 29. And Jesus told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees, for that matter, if you don't know what a fig tree is. Verse 30. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So Jesus is using a common example for their culture, but, it, but we get it too, right? If you look at any tree, you can tell Generally, the seasons you're in by just looking at the leaves, the colors of the leaves. You, you see the oranges, the beautiful yellows and reds. That's actually a sign that winter is coming. Fall is here. Winter is coming. And then if you start to see the leaves bud, you know that spring is here, kind of. You know, in, in Minnesota, we get, you know, these kind of, you know, uh, yeah. It, it, March is when Minnesota is not really sure what it wants to be, you know, it kind of jukes us out of our shoes often. But, but so we get this analogy that if you look at trees, you can get an idea of what's going on in the world. And Jesus is going to use that and say, hey, even more so, you can have spiritual eyes to see what is actually happening in the spiritual realm and what is actually happening in the world if you have eyes to see the signs. Verse 31. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Now, you can spend all day long saying, what are these things? What are these things? And sit there and just look at that. But remember, we've said it many times before, but you never want to read a Bible verse. You never want to read a verse. you got to read the context. And remember, I said that we've been talking about this for weeks now. So we're in the middle of Jesus. We're at the end of Jesus' teaching. So if you're just starting here, you're going to be confused and you may sadly come up to a lot of bad conclusions if you just read our section today. But what are these things? Well, if you look in, if you have your Bible open, look at the section just right before what we're reading today. If you look there, starting from verse 
25 and 26, Jesus speaks about signs in the skies and in the heavens and people fainting with fear. Pastor Ross preached on that last week. And so I, got, I have in my mind that when Jesus says, when you see these things taking place, he's immediately talking about what he just literally said, right? Which makes sense. And he says this, you know that the kingdom of God is near. When Jesus speaks about the kingdom is near, there's a lot here that I had to cut this morning for the sake of time, but I take it as Jesus talking about the kingdom that is to come, that has no sign of death, no sign of the curse, where Jesus reigns perfectly and we no longer sin. No death, no disease. That kingdom is coming. Sometimes Jesus speak, speaks about the kingdom is now, and sometimes he speaks about it's to come. And when he speaks about it now, he's talking about now when the penalty of sin is being, has already been dealt with, but in the power of sin we're dealing with, and yet the presence of sin is still remaining. So the kingdom of God is here right now in this room, but the presence of sin is still a reality that we all have to grapple with, and we can often relinquish the power of sin we have been given. But one day when Jesus comes in fullness, the kingdom will be here with no presence of sin, no power, no penalty for his people. Now, that's what I understand. Jesus is speaking about that coming kingdom. Now, in verse 32, we're going to embark on a really short journey on this word, this generation, because this is one of the most debated verses in Luke. It's very difficult, and you will not be satisfied if you are a scholar here with what I'm about to say. I just want to warn you because of the sake of time. So talk to me after if you want to. Verse 32, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Who's this generation? Is Jesus speaking about those who are standing right in front of him like the disciples? Or is he talking about future people, like maybe us? This is where scholars disagree, and I'm not going to get into the weeds of it, because that's going to distract from the main point. I, I want to tell you my conclusion without giving you all my arguments, and that's dangerous to do, because you don't want to hear from preachers and just say, take my word for it. Okay, You don't want to do that. But for the sake of this morning, kind of take my word for it, okay? And this is my position. So you, you, you do the good study and look up and disagree with me, that's fine. But that's not the main point of this passage. But what I understand is Jesus is both referring to his disciples right there in part, but future generation when he returns in full. And what I mean by that is that often if you study biblical history as well as world history, is that you see cycles. And these cycles increase over time. And each cycle that comes through has different remnants and pictures and foreshadows of the final signs. And it looks like it's the real sign. You know, so you have Nero come along or Antiochus Epiphanes doing different things in Israel hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago. And it's like, oh, here are the signs. And then what we find is some of the signs are still fully not showing, but it's kind of there. And then another generation comes on, like, oh, it's Hitler, it's Hitler, we knew it. And then it's like, oh, it's Putin. Like, where every generation is always like, it's this. And what we've seen is increasingly these cycles show more and more of the foreshadow what's to come in the final signs. But each sign is just building up. And it looks like it, but it's not fully there. And some signs are not fully there. And so that's what I take it. I say, I take it as that, yes, the Jerusalem temple will be destroyed in 70 AD. So just in a few decades from this time when Jesus is speaking it. But there's going to be a future reality where these signs in the heavens and taking place are going to come to a full head. And that has yet to come. And the generation that will exist, it could be us. Maybe not. Every generation seems to think it's them because we're self-centered and we always think that this is about us. I pray that it's us. But I'm terrified because if you read the signs of the times and you understand what's going on, this will be terrible. This is going to be one of the worst moments in human history followed by the greatest moment in human history. So I want that to be true for us. Now, let's go on. I, I said like a thousand words in like 20 seconds there. So if your ears are tired, just bear with me. I'm gonna slow down now. Now, verse 33. Jesus says all these comments and then he follows up with this powerful passage. Heaven and earth will pass away. But can you read this out loud? But my words will not pass away. Now, if you're a careful reader of the Bible and you understand your Old Testament, Jesus is actually echoing very famous words from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. You can flip to it or it's on the screen. Isaiah 48, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. 
What, what is Jesus saying here? He's taking illustrations from the natural and saying, hey, you know this stuff will go away? Like our grass kind of fades in the winter and stuff. But you know what doesn't fade away? My word. And Jesus is echoing Yahweh's words. But, and, and by him doing that, he's saying, I have that same authority. The authority of Yahweh's words are my authority as well. And how could Jesus say such a thing? Well, because he's divine and because he makes sure these things come to pass. He doesn't just predict the future. He writes the future. He ordains the future. And that's good, comforting words for us. Because we want to know that this, this word right here is solid. It's something we can put our hearts into. We could bank our lives on no matter what happens. Because sometimes we experience things in the world where it doesn't fit this always. And we're like, is this really true? Are you really there for me? Are you really going to come through? And, and, and passages like this remind us, yes, you can bank on this, where you can take it to the bank. It is more dependable than heaven and earth. What is more dependable than heaven and earth? I mean, if I said, hey, I bet any of you $10,000 that heaven and earth will pass away tomorrow, who would take me on that bet? Yeah? Two of you, the rest of you are dumb, all right? You should take me up on that bet. Heaven and earth will most likely be here tomorrow. And if it's not, then you won't care about $10,000, right? Every single one, you should be like, yes, absolutely. What's more dependable? It's not like every day you wake up, you're like, oh man, the sky's here. I can't believe. No, the sky will be here probably, right? And so Jesus is taking very, very concrete, like solid things that you can depend on saying, you know what? My word is even more dependable than those realities, and so next time you question God's word and you, you falter in the midst of all our understandable trials and doubts that come and assail our hearts, you can just look up the sky and the earth and say, you know what, this is more sure than that, than this, than that. Now in light of this coming age of Jesus' return and all the terrible events that we've been talking about for the last few weeks, Jesus has strong words of warning. For who? His disciples. In order to help them be faithful and endure. And not just his disciples like the 12, but us as well. Verses 34 and 36 is where we're going to spend most of our time in this morning. Would you read this out loud? Because I'm already losing my voice, as you guys can probably tell. Verse 34, read this with me. But watch yourselves. Beautiful. This, this word watch is a command. Watch. Present continual action, if you're a grammar nerd. Is, so it's not watch one time, watch this show. No, it's a continual watching, okay? Like you're a watchman waiting at a tower looking for enemies or looking for good news to come. You're continually watching. This word watch, if you look at every time it shows up in the Bible, also is used, translated as beware. Beware. Who are we to beware of? The progressives? The Democrats, Republicans, no, no, no. Beware of who? Yourselves. <laughs> our, our, our sin nature tempts us to beware of everybody else but ourselves. <laughs> oh, those sinners out there, outside of the four walls of our church, or those people on TV or in social media, oh, they're so stupid. They're so ignorant. No, no, no. Jesus' primary call of who you should be aware of is not those people, but yourself. That's sobering. Beware of yourself. Watch yourselves. What are you to watch over? Well, in this passage, two things. Number one, our hearts being weighed down, if you're taking notes, and, and I will argue that that means being put to sleep. And then the second thing that Jesus calls us to beware and watch is for the day, his day, when he comes back, to come upon you suddenly, like a trap. All right, number one, weigh down hearts. And I will argue in a second, sleepy hearts. What does it mean for your heart to be weighed down? I was thinking about, what does that mean? Weighed down, sad, preoccupied? Well, then, so I pulled out my Greek Bible and looked up the word weighed down. It's one word. And it only shows up five times or six times in the Bible, in the New Testament. And half the times when you look up this word, weighed down, it, it refers to sleepiness, falling asleep. And the other half, it's towards uh, being anxious and worry, worrisome. And so which one does it mean here? Worrisome or sleepy? Well, whenever you're not sure what breaks the tie, starts with a C. 
ends with ontext. Context. The context breaks the tie. The context helps you understand what is actually Jesus' meaning here. And so I understand this word not to be translated way down, though that could, be, that could work, but to understand it as stay awake. Don't be put to sleep. It's not nap time. So I take this as being sleepy or losing alertness. And so the question then you should follow with is, what are you spiritually sleeping towards? Well, towards spiritual reality. What are three spiritual sedatives that Jesus then lists that could make our hearts sleepy, that can make any Christian's heart sleepy? Number one, dissipation. Dissipation. I know it's that word that you use every day. You're like texting, right? No, dissipation, we don't use that word. But, but I looked up in a Greek dictionary because I was like, I don't know what that word means either, okay? It only shows up one time in the New Testament. And, and it, def, it has this idea of intoxication, a hangover with a headache, dizziness, staggering. So what would make your heart sleepy? Number one, dissipation. Connected to dissipation is number two, drunkenness. Now, the obvious meaning here would be drunk with alcohol or another substance. But here's the deal. I don't think at our church, in our history, we've ever talked about alcohol much in our church. But the reality is what our country struggles with will inevitably find its way in our church. And the reality is our country has a very, very unhealthy relationship with alcohol and in substances in general especially in light of the pandemic, right? When you think about having a good time, it is synonymous with having a drink. It's celebrated in our movies. We laugh at it. It's hilarious when people are drunk. We think it is, at least. It's not funny to God. It's on billboards. It's on commercials. I can't watch something with my kids without them being told the message that you need alcohol to be satisfied and to be funny or cool or to have a good time. So it's all around us. So believe it or not, you are being shaped by it unless you're being careful and aware of it. And what's interesting is that no other gospel out of the four gospels celebrates the joy of feasts and parties than the gospel of Luke. You guys pick that up? It highlights the joy of wine and the joy of feast and people and having a good time more than any other gospel, and it holds it up in a positive light. And yet, every single gospel that shows this account, Jesus' account of warning his disciples at the end times, none of them in include these warnings about alcohol, dissipation, and drunkenness. So what does that say? It tells us that Luke has a very robust, nuanced understanding of God good, God's good gifts, like alcohol. He understands that you can truly worship and glorify God by enjoying a good drink to the glory of God. And yet at the same time, he understands that it's a big trap if you're not careful. And he is, he is too smart and too wise to be oversimplistic and reductionistic and say, no alcohol for you. Alcohol is always bad. And yet he won't say, it's only a good time to have a, it's the only thing right to do is have a party all the time, have a good time and drink, and you don't have to worry about it. Eat, drink, and be merry. He holds up both realities that they're God-given gifts, and yet it has tremendous challenges and traps and temptations for us. We have to hold both realities up carefully with our word, through prayer, and through community, and way through our relationship with substances, good gifts like alcohol. I know that's bothering maybe some of you that I'm saying that because you would rather me not qualify the good times of alcohol. Or on the other hand, you may not want me to qualify the fact that alcohol has traps. And if I'm bothering both sides, I'm probably teaching the truth. We need to be careful. If you have not carefully thought about your relationship with alcohol, you probably have an unhealthy relationship with alcohol. Because whatever is not deliberate and intentional in light of what the culture pushes we're probably just absorbing what they peddle us here are a few quick questions i just want to highlight it's on the screen to ask yourself if you have an unhealthy relationship with alcohol or any substances can i go one day or longer without a drink do i need a drink to have a good time do i seek alcohol in order to escape 
Do I use it to help me medicate bad feelings, loneliness, stress, anxiety, pain, etc.? If you answered yes to one or more of these questions, you may have a problem with alcohol. And the ultimate question you should ask is people close to you who know you and who will tell you the truth and ask them, what do you think about my relationship with alcohol? Because the reality is substances by nature are deceptive. If you're using the substances rightly, in the sense to the full effect, it is taking you out of your mind and out of reality. So that's why you don't ask a drunk person for wise advice because they are altered and distorted, their vision, their understanding of reality is distorted because of the influence, they're under the influence. Paul's going to use this language later on in Ephesians 4 and 5, that you have to be under the influence, not of alcohol, but under the spirit. But I can't get into that now. If you have a sense that you have a problem with alcohol or any substance, please, please, please do not leave this morning without talking to someone. Please, you're not alone in this. It's a big trap. It's hard. Many Americans struggle with it. Many people in the world struggle with it. You're not alone. Please ask for help. We want to help you with it. I get it. I get the challenge with it. Now, here's the reality, though. The New Testament doesn't strictly limit this theme of drunkenness to only alcohol, but to be under the influence, like I just referenced Paul, It broadens intoxication and being under the influence to not just alcohol or drugs, but to the ways of the world. Some of the most drunk people you will ever meet do not drink alcohol. They are drunk on the ways of the world. And that could be something as benign and good as a good career or good food or Money, which is not inherently evil in itself, but they're drunk on power and success and careers or, or social media. They're intoxicated. They're out of their mind. They're not in touch with reality because of these things of the world. And finally, the third sedative, which is kind of a catch-all if you missed any. Verse number three, cares of this life. The cares of this life expand spiritual sedatives to some, be something very explicit like a substance or something else like social media, but anything that weighs us down and distracts or dulls our hearts. All good things. Look, look at Luke 17, 28. It's on the screen. I preached on this, I don't know how many months ago, but Jesus is talking about what's going to be like on the last day before he comes. And he says it's going to be like the days of Noah. Just it was days of, he says Noah in another part. <laughs> Lot and Noah. They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. Is there anything sinful about those? Those are good gifts. Those are good, God-delighted gifts in its rightful place. And so what Jesus is doing in our, that chapter and then in our chapter is helping us understand that the normal stuff of life can actually intoxicate us and take us out of our minds, our spiritual right minds. Spiritually sub, un, well, well, drunk by normal things like refinishing or, or renovating your kitchen, you know? Or being on your phone all the time, checking out social media. All these little things are good gifts, but can easily be abused and take us out of our right minds. I mean, honestly, I just want to say one of the biggest spiritual sedatives of my generation is this thing right here. It is. You have to have a radical plan on how to put this in check so that technology will help you become the person you want to be and not constantly abuse you. I'm not saying get rid of technology. I'm not Amish, okay? Use it for the glory of God. My wife and I have been really convicted again for like the 50th time. And so we have new radical plans where we're putting this to sleep. We're putting this to sleep before we go to sleep at like 9.30. I said 10. She said 9.30. So I, all right, 9.30 is probably right, right? And then we make sure we're spending time with God in the morning before we pick this up. So we wake it up. It doesn't wake us up. All right, so that's one thing. I'm not pushing that, project, that conviction on you, but probably pretty good for you to do, all right? I just want to be clear. But you have to know what you're doing with this and how it is affecting your spiritual awakefulness. Is it helping you be more alert to reality or is it helping lull you to sleep? 
One of my friends and mentors, John Bloom, met with a missions director and he tells this really sobering story about this Iranian couple. If you guys understand, Iran has, uh, you can't be a Christian in Iran. Um, the church is thriving in, in the underground church within house church movements, but by and large, it is a brutal, brutal place to be a Christian. And this Christian couple had a chance to move to the United States. And after just a few months of living here, she turns to her husband and says, please let us go back home. Please let's go back to Iran. And when her husband asked her, why would you give up religious freedom to return to the persecution of Iran? She says this, and I quote, there is a satanic lullaby here. And all the Christians are sleepy. And I am feeling sleepy. She would turn the comforts of our country and the freedoms we have of faith to go to such a horrifying, oppressive regime because she thinks that will be better for her spiritual wakefulness? What kind of thinking? What is she on? What insanity? For most of us, we would try to talk her out of it, right? Hey, God, God exists to make your life safe and happy. Why would you go there? God brought you here. It's a blessing. Don't you see? It's a blessing. You need to stay here because that's what God wants for you. And she's saying, no, 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 no. There's something worse than being physically in danger. Spiritually sleeping. Spiritual slumber is more terrifying for her than it is dying. And oh, that would be the reality of our lives here. Do you see, friends, do you see, church, that when you consider a lullaby, a good, effective lullaby doesn't knock you out, it lulls you to sleep. Some of you guys saw on social media a couple years ago, uh, we put on these like Bible verse lullabies for our kids. It was like three years ago, and I'm listening to you with them, and I fall asleep. So I'm on the couch with the, like, this like blanket right here, just passed out, listening to like this baby lullaby, and Joanna's just laughing, videoing me. Do you guys remember that video? Right? I wasn't trying to sleep. I didn't know what hit me. I just passed out because of this, God so loved the world. Uh, right? And that's the danger of lullabies is you don't know what hits you. You guys know those times where you wake up in the morning and you're like, I don't remember when I fell asleep. You just did. And it hits you. And that is the danger we are in. This call to be where and watch out, these are constant traps. It's not like you just did it for one season when you were in a campus ministry and super spiritually awake. It's a reality because the enemy is constantly trying to put you to sleep. It's not like I did that one time. I read that Bible that one season or I was really close to God. No, no, no. It's a constant reality. You cannot bank on yesterday's stimulants, spiritual stimulants to make it work for you today. To daily reality, these sedatives are going after your soul. Now we move into the second thing that Jesus warns us to beware, verse 34. And that day will come upon you suddenly like a trap. This is the second warning. Let's talk about a trap. When you think about a trap, what's the simple meaning? A trap is not like, oh, I knew this was going to happen, or oh, I, I saw this coming, right? Of course you didn't see it coming. That's why you're in the trap. You didn't see it. A trap, it'll come upon you, what's this word? Suddenly. If you are not carefully watching and bewaring of your own spiritual state, you will fall into a trap. Indeed, you may have already fallen into the trap. Except in this trap, you're passed out. And you don't, you're not like, help me out. You're just, you're sleeping. You're sleeping in the hole. <laughs> Why should you be aware and pass out? Jesus gives a reason using that powerful grounding word for, verse 35, for. It will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. All who dwell on the earth. Every single person in this room, without exception, will have that day come upon you, whether it's in the new resurrection or if you're the last generation. It will come upon all of us suddenly. And depending on where you are at with your relationship with God, will define if it's going to be a trap or joy, a terror or a blessing. The greatest day of your life or the worst day of your life. But instead of being caught sleeping like a trap, Jesus again reiterates an alternative. 
You don't have to be asleep. You don't have to be caught off guard, sleeping like a trap. Here's the alternative. Verse 36. Would you read this out loud with me? But... Stay awake at sometimes when you're not tired, when you're well rested, when you're well fed, when life is no, at all times, another command. Stay awake. This is why earlier I said I take that word weighed down as more of like, don't be put to sleep. Stay awake. The first one is to beware of yourselves, and now we are commanded to stay awake. How? What's the means by which God has given us to stay awake? What does it say? Praying. That participle is a word that says, this is how you do it. This is the instrument. This is the means to make that verb a reality. Okay, I'm going back to grammar school, but I want you to understand what, what I'm, why I'm saying that. I'm not just making it up. To stay awake, you have to pray at all times. This reminds me of the disciples and Jesus is in the garden. Jesus is Lonely. Jesus is feeling the weight of the sins of the world that are about to be put upon him, the wrath of God he's about to absorb. And what does he say to his disciples? Verse 40 in chapter 22. We'll get there in in a few weeks. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. So what does a prayer help you? Not to enter into temptation. Again, this is not something you do once and you're done. It's a daily reality because daily temptations are being thrown at us. Listen, your daily devotional time with God, your one-on-one time, your closet prayer, Matthew 6 language, whatever you want to call it, your quiet time with God is not just so you can be a quote-unquote good Christian and put God in your debt. Okay, I'm saying all that in sarcastic ways. But because it's another means to keep you awake spiritually. More is at stake than just trying to feel good about yourself because you had a Bible streak you kept. But you're trying to stay awake because this is reality. This is life. This is truth. This is spiritual stimulant. And when you avoid this, you start falling asleep. And when you read it, I mean, I went through a couple weeks ago where I was just avoiding God's word for a few days. And I remember opening up God's word again and just reading some realities. And I'm like, oh. Yes, oh yeah, that's, re- that's reality. That's true, yes. And my heart started to wake up. This is true. When you avoid this, you start falling asleep, but you don't know what's true. And oftentimes you don't know, it just hits you. If you are not in regular, intimate conversation with God through his prayer, through prayer, his word, and his people, you are already nodding off to sleep or you're already asleep. What are we we escaping from, he says. Remember, Jesus has been teaching for some time. We've We've broken up in three sermons. I said that over and over again. I think Jesus is not referring to like the rapture in this passage. That's another passage you could talk about. But escaping from falling away. Escaping from giving up. Why do you need strength to be teleported away? See, I think what Jesus is referring to is the teaching that Pastor Daniel covered two weeks ago in verses 10 through 12 and 16 through 19. It's going to be on the screen. I'm not going to read it all for the sake of time. But do you remember these passages? Nation will go against nation. There'll be earthquakes, famines, and all the land, miraculous signs. You'll be dragged into prison. In verse 16, the next slide, even those closest to you, your parents, your brothers, your relatives, your friends will betray you. And even some of them kill you. How will you stand in that day if your literal family members are going to hand you over to die? Because that will save their butts as they're worshiping and serving the beast. How will you stand in that day? By pulling up your bootstraps? By being mentally strong enough? No, by praying at all times. Be wearing of yourself, watchful of yourself with, your, with the word, with prayer, with God's people. And our passage ends with this phrase, In verse 36, back to Luke 21, verse 36. And to stand before the Son of Man. The call from Jesus in these passages, and in in fact, in any end times passage, is not for you to be constantly watching Twitter and constantly watching the news 
and trying to figure out every new conspiracy out there, that's exhausting and disorienting. It, nor is it a call for you to be physically prepared with enough food rations and gold and a generator and a nice home far away from people so you can avoid the apocalypse. No, but rather the call is to stand, be awake and be aware so that you can what? Stand before Jesus. Stand before the Son of Man. The call is not to be physically prepared, though that may be wise, and I have some stuff in my house, I won't tell you what's there, but to be spiritually ready to see your maker. See, so often, Christians, we get caught up with being part of the planning committee of Jesus' return. Jesus, I think you're going to return this day, in this hour. Oh, because this happened in Russia, or this happened in Taiwan, or this happened here. You're going to come here. No, no, no. Our call is to be part of the welcoming committee. You don't know when he's coming, but you're ready. And can I tell you, one of the great joys when I come home is when my kids say, Daddy! And they stop whatever they are doing and they jump into my arms. And you know how bad it feels when I come home and they're looking at screens and they're like, oh, you. And they just can't say it, right? You guys know what I'm saying? Right? They're spiritually asleep to me, to the glorious presence of their father, right? They're, they're knocked out by the sedatives of Bluey and Disney. But what a joy it is for me to come home and they're ready and they're excited and they jump into my arms. They're so happy to see me. And what a joy it would be for Jesus to come back in his churches like that. Not so caught up on our phones. Be like, uh, oh, you. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. We're doing this now. Okay. Uh, mm, one second. No, I've been waiting for you my whole life and preparing to see you. What does it mean to be spiritually awake? Let me land the plane. Let me use some tangible examples to contrast between sleepers and those spiritually awake. See, those who are spiritually awake see and savor the glory of God and find him the most satisfying pleasure and glorious person in the universe. And, and because of that, their lifestyles reflect that. Their worship is huge because their God is huge. On the other hand, are you more like a spiritual sleeper who you hear about the glory and greatness and majesty of God and it really doesn't excite you, it doesn't seem that great and so as a result, your worship and obedience in life is small. Those spiritually awake, they sin, they still sin, they cut God to the heart, but their heart is broken because they have godly sorrow because they broke the one whom they love. On the other hand, are you like those who are spiritually sleeping? When you sin, you just are more upset that you failed yourself and your own expectations of how good and moral you are. Those spiritually awake enjoy God's gifts, God's gifts like alcohol or houses or families or sex or different good God-given gifts. But they don't fully find all their satisfaction in it because they found their satisfaction in a greater treasure. And so therefore, they regularly lay down comforts of this age because they're storing up for themselves treasure in heaven. Or are you like those who are spiritually sleeping, who you find eternity so little and so uncompelling that you are doing everything you can to make heaven on earth now and store up your treasure on earth? Those spiritually awake are tuned in with the lies of the world because they're so tuned in with the voice of their father so that when they hear the lies of the world, they can spot it out right away. They see how the culture is moving. They see what's shaping and discipling our world. Or are you like spiritual sleepers who are constantly tossed to and fro by every spiritual lie, every philosophy, every fad, every value of the world, and don't even know it? Those who are spiritually awake Understand that our wrestle is not against, our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and spiritual powers and principalities in the heavenly places. So you understand that there's more to this. There's more to Ukraine and Russia than just what's, what we see on BBC or whatever you watch. But, or you like those who all you can see is what you see. And that's all the fight is. You fight with your spouse, it's your spouse's fault. You don't understand that there's spiritual forces working to destroy your marriage as well. Those who are spiritually awake tremble at the prospect of hell for their friends, families, and neighbors. 
and are so deeply humbled and grateful that God saved them from that that they deserve? Or are you like those who are spiritually slumbering who you hear about hell, sounds unpleasant, but you just try to avoid it because it's weird and uncomfortable? And so it doesn't really bother you that your friends and family and co-workers are going to hell. Listen, the reality is this. I know that was sobering. This is not an on or off switch for Christians. If you're not a Christian, this is on or off switch. You're either spiritually sleeping or you're awake. But, but in, in the purposes of this passage, it's more like a dimmer switch. You know, like a dimmer switch in your room. It, it's not like it's, it, it, it slides. And as you turn up the light, you can see more. And I think that's what the reality of Christian maturity is. See, as I grow closer to Christ, I see more that he sees. Light brightens my spiritual rooms. And then I become awakened to spiritual realities. I get to see the world as I ought to. I see the world rightly. My lenses are calibrated. My eyes are bright to reality. But when I'm away from this, when I'm away from prayer, when I'm away from his people, my eyes get dim and things get dark and truth gets obscured. And things that are not that important become also important. My values get skewed. My priorities get skewed. My desires, my affections get skewed. And so, listen, every single one of us, when I just did this compare and contrast between spiritual sleepers and those sleeping, we're all in that boat. We all struggle to feel the full gravity of hell. We all struggle to see the full gravity and the majesty and the glory of God. Can we, I mean, do we, do we understand that right now there are angels flying around him that dare not even look at him and they're crying out, holy, 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 and there's lightning and peals of thunder and that God right now is listening to this gathering right now. None of us here fully get that reality. So this is a dimmer switch. We all want to grow to reality, understand these realities more and more. Okay, so I just want to make that clear. So, so if I listed you in some of these, I'm not saying you're not a Christian, okay? But if you are characterized by these spiritual sedatives over time, you may not be a Christian. See, because the Christians have the Holy Spirit inside of them, transforming their heart, convicting of these, and saying, wake up, Sam, wake up. This is not who you are. This is not what you're meant for. You're meant for eternity. You're not meant for these trifling realities on this earth. And so if you find yourself characteristically sleep in a lot of these spiritual realities, you may be in danger. You may be spiritually dead. And if that's you and you're not sure, or if you are a Christian, you're saying, Sam, I've been nodding off lately at the spiritual wheel. I've been so caught up on this and social media and politics or my job or whatever, or maybe something more explicit like porn or drinking or whatever it is, you're falling asleep. The same remedy is available for those who are falling asleep and those who have never woken up before. And that's crying out to mercy. To the, to the God who loves to give mercy, the God who loves to wake up people, the God who's waiting for you with arms open wide and made every attempt to remove every barrier between you and him by dying for you, by being tortured for you. Jesus died on the cross like he was the most asleep person in the world when he was the most awake to reality. And so if that's you this morning, turn to him. Grab someone who's more awake than you spiritually and say, help me, pray for me. I need help. And the reality is, in the nature of being asleep, we often don't see ourselves fully rightly. And one of the greatest pride, proud dangers and arrogant dangers we have is that we think we know best of our state. And making disciples for the last 18 years, 19 years of my life now, the, one, the biggest hurdles is that everyone has a skewed view of themselves. And that's one of the biggest hurdles for their spiritual growth. And that's true for me too. And so ask people who are trustworthy, who are more awake to spiritual realities to help you. So how do you, listen, how do you be awake when he returns? So three quick things. Pray and get with daily the most spiritual awake person in the world, and that's Jesus. The most spiritually aware in tune. Spend time with Jesus in his word and prayer and his people. Get around, number two, get around others who are awake. As you start being around people who are awake, you're like, oh man, I've been asleep to that reality. And sister so-and-so or Mr. So-and-so or brother so-and-so, get that more. Help me awaken. And then third, get yourself around people who are more awake than you. You know what they're like. They're in our church. Go grab them. Be like, help me. I see something in your eyes that I don't have right now. I want that. You are awakened to the majesty and glory and the terrors of this world more than I am. Help me wake up. Remember, it's a dimmer switch. 
And so let me end with this. I, I want to end with another means to help us stay awake, and that's to be regularly reminded by the promises of Jesus. Remember verse 32, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words won't pass away. Jesus is, that promise from Jesus, that word, is not just talking about these warnings and the end times. It's also talking about everything Jesus says. And that includes his glorious, precious promises. And so I want to end with a list that I got from Pastor Phil Riken of promises we can end on. Jesus has promised, church, receive this. I just want you to receive this for a second. Hear these words. Jesus has promised to forgive all our sins through the cross where he died for our salvation. Jesus has promised that whoever comes to him will never be turned away. Jesus has promised to give us everything we truly need. Jesus has promised to be with us in all our troubles, giving us perfect peace and rest through the Holy Spirit. He has also promised us to heal all our wounds in our bodies and souls, either now or in eternity. He has promised to prepare a place for us in the Father's house. And finally, he has promised that by the power of his resurrection, he will raise his children up from the grave, and when he comes again, take us home to be with him. Amen? What a glorious Savior. Don't you want to be with him? Don't you want to see him? But if you're sleeping, you don't want to see him yet. you got to wake up, and I want that for you. We cry, come, Lord Jesus. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this warning. And we know that warnings are heavy and hard, but they're good. They're blessings. They're loving to us. I pray that myself and all my people and visitors here, we would be awakened to realities. Wake us up. Shake us up from our slumber. Sober us up from our intoxication of the world. Help us see reality as you do, Lord. We want to see and savor you. You are offering us a banquet and we often reject it for junk. We want to value the right things. So Father, if there's anything I said that was inaccurate, didn't represent you rightly in tone or in its substance, Lord, correct me. But Lord, all that is true, let it deeply shape us. Waken us up. Speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen.